So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi? Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus told them, this very night, you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. We're talking today about communion and the resurrection. What does that passage have to do with the resurrection? Well, if you'll remember in verse 32... The Lord said, after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. So after predicting that one of them would betray him, after predicting that he would drink fruit of the vine with them again in the kingdom, that was a prediction right there related to his resurrection. After predicting that the shepherd would be struck and the sheep would be scattered and that they would leave him, and of course, Peter, if we continued reading, denied that he would deny the Lord, which, of course, we know the rooster crowed, and he denied him three times. But in the middle of all that discourse, Christ predicted his resurrection. After I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Matthew 26, verse 19 says, The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve, now, to have a proper Passover Seder, you have to have a minimum of 10 people. 
It's an ironic parallel today. We have an, a maximum of 10 people we're asked to abide by in our gatherings. But a proper Passover Seder has at least 10 people. And as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? He answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, you have said it. Now, God's warnings are always redemptive. Judas could have repented and said, it's me, I repent. Please forgive me, I'm not going to betray you. But he didn't. He followed through because he had hardened his heart and made up of his mind. There's a great danger in our lives that we not harden our hearts and make up our mind about things that are not God's will. The hardened heart is so rebellious. May the Lord soften our hearts today as we reflect on this story. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. At a certain point in the Passover Seder, a whole piece of matzah is lifted up and broken. And then it is shared around the table. And these words are said, this is the bread of affliction eaten by our ancestors when they were fleeing bondage in Egypt. This is the bread of affliction. Now, everyone at the table knows it's not the same bread that they ate, in Egypt, centuries ago, my goodness, that would be moldy and inedible, and it would have all been eaten up that night anyway. But this is the bread of affliction. In other words, this is a picture of the unleavened bread. The Jews fixed their bread in a hurry, did not have time to let it rise because they were going to go on a trip. Oh boy, did they ever. And this unleavened bread we are breaking is like that. This is the bread of affliction. So when Christ lifts up the bread and blesses it and breaks it and said, this is my body, he's not saying some kind of weird cannibalistic thing. This is me, I'm now this bread. But no, this identifies with what I'm about to do. I'm about to offer up myself in brokenness and in bleeding for the sins of the world so that you might have life. Just as this bread gives you life, so my broken body will give you life. Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. So he passed the cup around the table. And he said, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission or the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day that I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. 
So when we partake of the Lord's table, the table of remembrance, the bread and the cup of communion, we're celebrating what the Lord did for us, initiated here, right here in the middle of a Passover Seder, is Christ setting up a form of worship that we practice to this day. Hopefully you've gotten your cups and your bread and are prepared to take communion in a few minutes. This blood is the new covenant. He poured out his blood. In the Old Testament days, covenants were made and blood was shed to ratify or to seal the deal. You remember Mark Twain's writings that Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn, I think, cut their fingers and held their hands together while their blood mingled so they could become blood brothers. It's like that. It's not only blood shed to wash our sins away because it's a full payment for the, for the penalty of sin, but it's also blood shed to seal a covenant between God and man. Jesus, who was both God and man, did it for the rest of us. May that beautiful truth radiate through all of our lives in things that will transform us. And when they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, don't get excited. These hymns are in the book of Psalms. They were singing psalms, probably like they sing every year at Passover Seders. I think it's Psalm 112 through 118, those six or seven psalms are sung in celebration of God's goodness. It's about a 15-minute walk from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. So I imagine them singing all the way through these beautiful psalms. Then he says to them, they've arrived at their destination where he's going to pray and eventually get arrested. He said, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, and he quotes a prophecy from the Old Testament, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. After I have risen, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, before we take communion, I just want to highlight one unusual aspect I learned recently. The Passover is a feast. But for the Egyptians, it was a plague. It was the plague of the firstborn. Every home in Egypt that did not have the blood of the Passover lambs applied to the two doorposts and the lintel of the door, the angel of death, the bringer of the plague, would not pass over their home, but went into their home and took the life of the firstborn son. It was true for their animals as well. It so broke the hearts of the Egyptians that they sent the Israelite slaves to freedom. So in memory of that, there is a custom in Judaism called the fast of the firstborn, and it takes place the day before Passover. Fasting in appreciation to God for sparing the lives of the firstborn slaves, man and beast. In gratitude, it's called the fast of the firstborn, remembering the plague of the firstborn from the Egyptian side and God's blessing to them in passing over them.
But you can sidestep fasting that day in two ways. One, if you're under 13, your dad would fast for you. Two, if you had completed a course of Torah studies, you could celebrate that completion on the night before Passover, the day before Passover, on the day of the fasting of the firstborn, celebrating like kind of like a graduation ceremony. Here, the firstborn son of God, who's about to take the plague of sin upon himself and die on behalf of the sins of the world as our Passover lamb, is eating with his disciples, having come to a conclusion to a three-plus-year discipleship course, you and I would say, oh, those guys weren't ready for graduation. But they were. They were just about to be tested beyond belief. So I thought that was unique. On this night, the Lord instituted his supper that he was also, as the firstborn, about to take the plague upon himself that sin has brought upon mankind. So at this time, I'm going to start a four-minute countdown, and this is a time for you to take communion together as families. Remember, select someone to pray a prayer of thanks for the bread and to eat the bread together, giving thanks to Jesus for his offering for us through his broken body. And then someone else that you appoint or that volunteers, pray a prayer of thanks for the shed blood of Jesus, and drink from the cup. If you don't have the fruit of the vine, have something pure to represent the Lord's shed blood for us. His body was broken so that his blood could be shed. Out of his brokenness, we are made whole with God and one another. That is the purpose of his brokenness. And his shed blood redeems us from our sin, but also seals us in a covenant relationship with God that no one could break. Here's your countdown. As we break this bread, as we drink this cup, Lord, we remember. 
your flesh was torn Lord we remember this is the way you've chosen to say this is the way you make all things new and this is the As we break this bread, as we drink this cup, Lord, we remember. Communion is such a wonderful blessing. And now we're going to talk about the resurrection. But first, I would like for us to read from Matthew 27 to Matthew 28, verses 62 of 27 to verse 20 of 28. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said... After three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, 
For I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now we're talking about the resurrection. Christ has been crucified for the sins of the world, dying an unjust death as an innocent man, the Son of God, tortured, falsely accused, betrayed, abandoned, and slaughtered. It was the ultimate of sins to demonstrate that while we were yet sinners, God loved us through Christ dying for all of our wrongdoing. He paid our unpayable fines. He paid our unfathomable debt because of his mercy and grace. And he extends grace for us to be able to receive his grace. So here in the story of his resurrection, it says on the next day which followed, the day of preparation, this is after his burial. The next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that while he is still alive, how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day 
lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. So you remember, Christ died during the time of Passover. And in Jewish law, there is Shabbat, the seventh day of every week is a Sabbath. But there's also special festival Sabbaths. And so there's some confusion brought on by tradition that if Christ died on Friday, the day before the Sabbath, and he rose from the dead on Sunday, the first day of the week, how could that be three days? For he said as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three nights and three days, so shall the Son of Man be. How is that three days? Well, he was buried, he died before the Sabbath, but not the seventh-day Sabbath, but a festival Sabbath. And so if you do the math chronologically, he died either on Wednesday or Thursday. I think he died and was buried on Thursday. And so as you count, you begin with the day of his death as one of those days. Just like in music, when you count steps, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, you count the one. And then the next note from one to two is the second note. So you count the first day and night, the next day and night, the next day and night, and there's Christ risen. Thursday day, Thursday night, Friday day, Friday night, Saturday day, Saturday night, the end of Shabbat, he arose from the dead. So today we're going to talk about reasons to believe in the resurrection. My first reason is the enemies of Christ his enemies. Here we see in our text that they took special measures to ensure the fact there would not be a fake resurrection. And so Pilate heeded their request. He said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. So with the Roman governor's approval and their own guards given to them by Roman approval, they set up guards 24-7, actually 24-3, around the perimeter of the grave site. And they put a seal on the stone so that you could tell if the grave had been tampered with. How is this a reason to believe in the resurrection? Well, they kept the crime scene clean. They kept the area uncontaminated with human tampering by establishing these guards and this seal to make sure there could not be a fake resurrection because they wanted Jesus and his movement over with. This is why they killed him. They wanted it done and finished. They wanted his movement stopped. This is why they wanted him dead. And a stolen body that they couldn't find would be their greatest nightmare. Guess what? It happened. He wasn't stolen. He arose from the dead just as he had predicted. Let's read on. Verse 1 of Matthew 28. Now, after the Sabbath, this is the seventh-day Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door 
and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. They, they, their strength left them. They were terrified by this amazing creature. The angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know who you may seek. Jesus, who was crucified, he is not here, for he is risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. Remember, in chapter 26, he says, When I rise, I will meet you in Galilee. He's going there before you. There you will seek him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. The second reason I believe in the resurrection are his eyewitnesses. In any legitimate courtroom of the world, eyewitness testimony is allowed and taken seriously. And if accused, the legitimate courtrooms of the world will not convict you unless there's more than one witness. So here's a plurality of women who have been eyewitnesses. Now, if this had been a scam, they would not have chosen women to be eyewitnesses because women's testimonies were not taken seriously. They were not educated as much as men were. And if, if accused of a crime, you had two male witnesses against you, you were toast. You were considered guilty pretty much unless a good lawyer could find holes in their testimony. But here, the true first eyewitnesses were women, which to me signifies the Lord doesn't have a gender issue, that he loves men and women alike and values them and their witnesses valid. Now, the truth is, they loved the Lord passionately. They were eager to minister in some kind of way to bring him honor. That's how they happened to be the first witnesses. Needless to say, they were. And so I believe in the resurrection because of his enemies and also because of his eyewitnesses. Let's read verse 9. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them. So they really were eyewitnesses of the risen Christ and not just of the testimony of an angel and the empty tomb. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Another reason to believe in the resurrection is his encouraged followers. Remember, those closest to him abandoned him. One even denied that he even knew him. And this resurrection story transformed their lives and encouraged them, pulled them out of the mully grubs. They were not deceived. Jesus is the Messiah. He is alive. And so here, the first followers to be encouraged were the first eyewitnesses of the empty tomb. Verse 11 now they were going, verse 11, now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. 
There's other eyewitness testimony to the dismay of the enemies. Verse 12, when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So greed furthered their crime. Now they bought off the soldiers, paid them to lie at the expense of their own integrity that they had fallen asleep on the job. It's interesting that they were not charged with any military crimes, though, for sleeping on the job. Verse 15, so they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. So my fourth reason for believing is the empty tomb. Here, the enemies of Christ had to admit that the tomb was empty. That empty tomb cost them good money to pay the guards off to lie and say they fell asleep and the body was stolen. No one ever produced this stolen body. No investigation was had. They just paid them off. But the fact remained, the tomb is empty. Jesus borrowed the tomb for three days. Don't you know when it was given back to Joseph of Arimathea, it had great value. Everything Jesus borrowed improved. Remember the donkey he rode into Jerusalem? It was an unbroken donkey. Had not been ridden before. And when he gave it back to its owner, here's your donkey, tamed and ready to ride. When he borrowed the six stone water pots, he filled them with great wine, between 150 and 180 gallons of water turned into wine. So this is just a little plug here. If you borrow something, return it in good shape. May it be uh, something you're able to return in better shape than you found it. All right, back to the story, why we believe in the resurrection. Verse 16, then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worship him, but some doubted. But they didn't doubt for long. The fifth reason I believe in the resurrection is his leaders, his followers became leaders and became powerful leaders because of the resurrection. The Lord continues and speaks to them saying, verse 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So everything is under his authority. So don't get shook up by conspiracy theories. Don't get shook up by false prophecies. Don't get shook up by diseases and pestilences and locusts. For all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet, because this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world, and then the end shall come. We saw that last Sunday in 
Matthew 24. Because he has all authority in heaven and on earth, verse 19, go therefore, because I have all authority, go and make disciples of all the nations. That's not just all the countries in the world, but that's all the ethnic groups in the world. That's the people that's not your kind. If you're a redneck, that's the people that are sophisticated. If you're a white guy, that's the people that aren't white. Make disciples of all the ethnic groups, of all the nations of the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, this isn't just some formula to recite when you're baptized, but you're to be baptized into the reality of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them, those you've made disciples, to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The sixth reason I believe in the resurrection is its enduring results. This command is what makes us evangelical Christians. We're to go into all the world and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teach them to observe everything Jesus commanded. And this is one of those commands. The others are in the Gospels. Read them. Don't label them, oh, that's the Sermon on the Mount or, oh, that's the hard sayings of Jesus. Those are the commands of Christ to be taken seriously. And he promised to be with us always, even to the end of the age. So while the world is shook up, what are we going to do? Jesus is with us. Through his holy, precious spirit, he is with us always, even to the end of the age. And one day in the kingdom feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb, he will drink of the fruit of the vine with us. And when we partake of the Lord's table, as we did a few minutes ago, we look forward that day. So the results of his resurrection endure to this day. Many of you watching and participating in this streaming church service are present because of the enduring results of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that every person listening to this word would consider the reality of your resurrection and would make you Lord of their life, that they would surrender to you and invite you to come in and take over their life to be Lord of everything. Another reason why I believe in the resurrection of Jesus is his resurrection engraved history. We live in A.D. 20. History in all the world is recorded in two forms, B.C. or A.D. B.C. is everything that happened before Christ. 300 B.C. is 300 years before Christ. 600 B.C. is 600 before Christ. But from Christ forward is A.D. It doesn't mean after death. It means the year of our Lord, Anno Domino. Domino relates to his lordship. It relates to his 
rain. Anno relates to time. Annual is yearly. The year of our Lord. It's like it's the Lord's birthday every time we celebrate a new year. 2020, how long has Jesus been a human? Now raised from the dead and yet still God always. He's always been God, but he's been one of us for 2020 years, A.D. 2020. Now, I know secular historians want to change that. They don't like that. So they go with B.C.E., which means before common era, and C.E., which stands for common era. But the years line up perfectly. B.C.E. is the same as B.C., and C.E. is the same as A.D., So you can't get away from the fact the Lord has engraved all of history. Now, you may think, you know, I'm still not sold on this. I can't twist your arm. I do not have the verbal skills to convince you. But I do have a video where the guy is much more verbal than I. And I would like for him to talk to you for the next minute or so. Now, lots of people say that there's no evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, so all I'm going to do here is provide one line of evidence. It's unfortunate, but I just don't have the time to mention something like the half-dozen facts developed by resurrection expert Gary Habermas, for instance. Minimal facts that even skeptics, atheists, and liberal scholars agree on. These facts are as follows. One, that Jesus died by crucifixion. Two, that very soon afterwards, his followers had real experiences that they thought were actual appearances of the risen Jesus. Three, that their lives were transformed as a result, even to the point of being willing to die specifically for their faith in the resurrection message. Four, that these things were taught very early, soon after the crucifixion. Five, that James, Jesus' unbelieving brother, became a Christian due to his own experience that he thought was the resurrected Christ. And six, that the Christian persecutor Paul, formerly Saul of Tarsus, also became a believer after a similar experience. Man, I wish I had the time to mention those, but I just don't. No time, good sir. No time, no time at all. I just don't have time to bring up what former atheist and law-trained journalist Lee Strobel said when he said, I figured it would be easy to disprove the resurrection. Give me a weekend and I can shred Christianity's central claim. Well, it wasn't that easy. After investigating the historical evidence, Mr. Strobel believed in the resurrection of Jesus. Watch the movie, read the books. Bummer I couldn't mention that to you. Ain't got time for this quote either. My job is to infer what is most reasonable from the list of evidences, said cold case detective J. Warner Wallace. After digging into the evidence, I was convinced that what the Bible claims about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the best explanation. The only weakness in the case, and there are always weaknesses, was my own bias against resurrections. Now, since I don't have time to mention such things, let me just get right to my point, okay? My one and only line of evidence has to do with the appearances of Jesus after his death. This is recorded in an early creed cited by the aforementioned Paul the Apostle, which we find in his letter to the Corinthian church. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared also to me. Okay, there's a lot of people who saw Jesus after he was crucified and buried, and this is exactly why Paul was so confident to stand in front of Festus and King Agrippa and tell them the truth. It's in Acts 25 and 26. Here's a snippet. Paul says, I stand here testifying, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Now, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, your great learning is driving you out of your mind. 
not sure if that was his actual accent, but Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I am speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things. None of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. In other words, all this was falsifiable. Everyone around town was talking about Jesus' resurrection. People had seen him. The tomb was empty. The stone was rolled away. The guards were perplexed. The religious leaders were mystified and tried to create a lie about what happened to the body. Paul, who was persecuting Christians earlier, was now one of them preaching the resurrection of Christ. None of this was hidden. It was all out in the open. So, my eclectic, evidence-eager evangelist, each ecstatically expecting an extraordinary ending, I leave thee with this. From Clive Staples Lewis. This is the story. What are we to make of Christ? There is no question of what we can make of him. It is entirely a question of what he intends to make of us. You must accept or reject the story. But what you can't do is glibly claim or irresponsibly assert that there is no evidence for the resurrection of Jesus because that, my friends, has been debunked. Adios. He is risen. And he is able by his spirit to bring you to what we call a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So if you find yourself beginning to believe the story of the resurrection, that's Jesus working on you. Don't fight him. Don't harden your heart. Don't resist him. But ask him to show you. I've been requested to sing a song. Like my dad, when he receives a musical request, he would say, Anytime I get a request to sing, I go ahead and sing anyway. It's called He Lives, sometimes called He Lives, He Lives, written by a Presbyterian minister named Alfred H. Ackley in 1932. Born in 1887, Alfred grew up to become quite a musician. In fact, he studied at the Royal Academy of Music in London, England. He returned home and went to Westminster Seminary and became a Presbyterian minister and pastored in two cities, two small communities in Pennsylvania before the Lord called him to Escondido, California. While serving in California, eventually he began traveling with popular evangelist Billy Sunday, and his music was used for the glory of God in Billy Sunday's services. One day at a certain service, he had witnessed to a young Jewish college student who asked him this question, why should I worship a dead Jew? This question he couldn't get away from. Why should I worship a dead Jew? And on Resurrection Day morning, he was preparing to preach on the resurrection to his congregation and turned on the radio and heard a liberal radio preacher from New York denouncing the resurrection and its importance. He said, basically, I don't care if Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, and I don't care if his bones have become dust in some grave somewhere in Palestine. But what I do care is what is most important, and that is that his truth is marching on. Alfred got so aggravated, he unplugged his radio and threw it across the room and said, lies! That Sunday at church, he preached the resurrection with great passion. That evening, Sunday evening, he was still aggravated at the radio preacher and still disturbed by the young Jewish college student's question, why should I worship a dead Jew? And his wife said, why don't you do what you do best and go and play some music? 
So he went to his room, and in answer to the college student's question, why should I worship a dead Jew, he wrote these words, putting them to music. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. And the opening verse goes like this. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. John's gospel opens his biography of Jesus with statements like this. As many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God. I was in the beginner class in Moline, Illinois, just a little boy in my daddy's church. And on my knees, I sang a little song inviting the Lord to come into my life. And he did. It didn't, the song didn't even really fit the theology of the denomination I was raised in, but something happened beyond the level of my understanding. I invited the Lord to come into my life. I'm going to sing this little song to you. Yes, once I get a request, I may take it too far. I hope I'm not doing that this morning. But it's this song, and if you could sing it, I believe the Lord could do something in your life. It goes like this, come into my heart. Come into my heart. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come in today. Come in to stay. Come into my heart. Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that every person listening and watching, that they would open their life's heart to you and invite you to come in and be Lord. Lord, bring them to a place of surrender. May they repent and turn from their sins to you. May they ask you for forgiveness and receive the free gift of salvation. Happy Resurrection Day from the Caspics in sunny Florida. Happy Resurrection Day. Happy 
Resurrection Day from Armando and Alice Camacho. Happy Resurrection Day from the Seekers. Happy Resurrection Day from the Kohler family. Happy Resurrection Sunday from the Belanger family. Happy Resurrection Day from the Ellis family. Happy Resurrection Day from the Neal family. Happy Resurrection Day from Amber and Tiffany. Happy, Happy Resurrection, Resurrection Day, Day from, from the Goodmans. Happy Resurrection Day from the Silvers. Happy Resurrection Day from the Myers family. Goodbye. Happy Resurrection Day from the Crawford family. This is Jeff and Sean Ferris wishing everybody at Generations Church a most blessed Resurrection Day. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Happy Resurrection Day from the Duncans. Happy Resurrection Day from the Maddens. Happy Resurrection Day from the, the Sanctus family. family. The King is alive. This is the Hensleys, Donnie and Laura. Happy Resurrection Day. God bless you. Happy Resurrection Day. Hey, it's Rachel. Happy Resurrection Day. Happy Resurrection Day from the Whites. Happy Resurrection Sunday from Rick Hicks and Buccelli. Happy Resurrection Sunday. Blessings and peace on this marvelous Resurrection Sunday. From our herd to yours. Shalom, everybody. Shalom. Happy Resurrection Day from the Turners. Jesus is alive. He's alive forever and ever and ever. Praise Jesus, Yeshua HaMashiach. Happy Resurrection Sunday. Happy Resurrection Day from, from the Lattice. We love you. Happy Resurrection Day from the Day family. From my family to yours, Happy Resurrection Day. We miss you and we can't wait to worship together again. The, the King, King is, is alive. alive. Happy Resurrection Day from the Garcia. Happy Resurrection Day from the Christ. Happy Resurrection. Happy Resurrection Day. You started already? Say it, say it. Happy, Happy Resur Resurrection Day. I can't see you, Bubby. You gotta start this over. Happy, ha <laughs> come on, Bubba, come on, come on. Happy, Happy Resurrection Day, Day from the Andersons. Bye. Happy Resurrection Day from the Kennedys and Journeys. Are we on? Happy Resurrection Day from the Snodgrass family. God bless you on this Resurrection Sunday. I'm sure it's one we will not forget. I look forward to seeing you soon. Be filled with His joy and His promise of everlasting life. He is risen indeed. Happy Resurrection Day from the Meehaws. Hey y'all, happy Resurrection Day from the Marcells. We love you, church family. We miss you. Love, love the, the Bats. Bye. Happy Resurrection Sunday. From the 
Logan family. Happy Resurrection Day! The King is alive! Happy Resurrection Sunday from the Garcias! Happy Resurrection Day from Janet Kidder. Happy Resurrection Day from the Whitney's.